You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Let's try one more time. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So glad to see all of you this morning. My name is James Fields. I serve as the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. It's indeed a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, just to let you know, today is a special day in the life of our church as we, um, as a church, we're celebrating our 20 years um, of being uh, in existence. So today is our birthday, um, and not just our birthday here at Soldier Church Carlisle, but within the collective churches, the six churches that represent our church, the first and founding church, uh, we're celebrating 20 years. So we're thankful to God for his faithfulness. We're thankful for God for his goodness to us in every way, amen? Um, so you may see some people wearing certain shirts or paraphernalia that uh, signify that. Um, if you want some of that material, talk to myself or Pastor Nick. We can instruct you to how to get that in our celebration. But we're thankful to God for his gift and his faithfulness in every way. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, we do thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for the opportune time to preach your word. We pray, Lord, that as always, you will hide me behind your cross. I thank you, God, that you have not made us sufficient for these things except through Jesus. So may he be glorified in every way. Um, I pray, Lord, that some heart may change and some mind may be transformed for the advancement of your kingdom. As always, take my little, make much of it. Glorify yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, as we look at this passage today in Matthew 19, it's a very familiar passage that many of you probably have heard before called the rich young ruler. And today, I want to preach from this thought coming from this text. And the thought is this, struggling to hold on. Struggling to hold on. Church family, I want you to know today that there are some things in my life that are worth holding on to. As a husband, the vows that I made to my wife over 14 years ago, that's something worth holding on to. As a father, my commitment to the growth and the development of my children, that is something worth holding on to. And even as a pastor, my obedience to God as my heavenly father and my covenant with this church, Soldier Church Carlisle, as both a member as well as a pastor, that's something worth holding on to. I want you to know that there are some things in my life that are also worth fighting for. As a worshiper of God, to worship God in the beauty of his holiness, that is something worth fighting for. As a preacher, my daily devotions with the Lord, meditating on his word, that's also something worth fighting for. And I hope there's some things in your life that are worth fighting for too. Yeah, I, I hope you know what I'm talking about. That no matter how hard it gets, no, ma- no matter how difficult the road may seem to be, no matter what obstacles may periodically come in your way, you have developed a mindset and you have maintained an attitude that says, I refuse to give in, I refuse to give up, I refuse to heed to myself to those sinful temptations. I refuse to bow down to those demonic influences in my life. 
I refuse to discredit the name of the Lord Jesus living an ungodly lifestyle simply because some things are worth fighting for. The soldier in church, Carla, I also want you to know that there's a flip side to this story. Yeah, there are also some things that are not worth holding on to. I love what the American poet Sylvia Robinson says, says about this. She said it this way. She said that some think it's, something is holding on that makes one strong. But sometimes it's letting go. You see, in our passage today, we witness a rich man, a rich young man, if you will, who is struggling to hold on. And I hear someone asking, Pastor Fields, what was he struggling to hold on to? Well, he was struggling to be a self-sustainer rather than a follower of Jesus. He was struggling to fit Jesus within his own perspective instead of fitting his perspective within the life and ministry of Jesus. He was struggling with some things. He was struggling with the desire to share in God's glory instead of recognizing that God's ultimate glory was revealed through his son, Jesus. He was struggling with the conceited heart of thinking more of himself than he ought and thinking less of Jesus than he should. He was struggling with this misconception. The misconception of seeing Jesus as simply being a good teacher rather than the word made flesh. He was struggling against his decrees, against Christ's word. He was struggling against his pride, against Christ's humility. He was struggling against his good works, against Christ's grace. In essence, he was struggling to acknowledge that he needed Jesus more than Jesus needed him. In our text today, we see a man who was struggling. We witness a man's internal struggle to either forsake all in order to follow Christ or to forsake Christ in order to follow all. Through this man's struggle, we witness the negative effects of holding on to something that we ought to let go. We witness a man who's trying to prove his salvation apart from the atoning work of Christ. We witness a man who is seeking to be made whole apart from a touch from the master's hand. And finally, we witness a man who's trying to profess being righteous apart from the work of God's righteous redeemer, Jesus Christ himself. Let's look at this text together. Look with me in verse 16. Notice that this person has remained to be nameless, but most scholars have, have identified him with the title, the rich young ruler. Secondly, I want you to notice how this description of him being the rich, young ruler accurately depicts his struggle to hold on to something that he ought to let go of. So 
let's look at the first word that was used to describe him, rich. Look with me in verses 16 and 17. It says this, just then, this, this, someone came up and asked him, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. See, verse 16 here identifies this man's selfish and prideful heart in relation to his wealth. Look at his heart's intents as he speaks to Jesus. Listen to the words that he says. Teacher, other version says, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life or inherit eternal life? Let's examine two aspects of this man's question that reveals his selfish heart. First, he refers to Jesus as being a good teacher. Not as Lord, not as Messiah, not even as a holy one of God, but this man has the audacity to call Jesus by the name good teacher. Now, I know some of you don't clearly understand the implications of this reference, but you must understand that he was not referring to Jesus as being a good teacher due to his recognition of his deity. No, 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 no. This is synonymous with calling Queen B a.k.a. Beyonce Knowles, an average entertainer. It is synonymous with seeing LeBron James as just being an okay NBA basketball player. This is synonymous with identifying Bruce Springsteen as a pretty decent musician. Can also be synonymous with labeling the Beatles as being moderately significant and on their effect on American rock culture. This in itself was an insult at worst or a misconstrued compliment at best. You see, this man identified Jesus as being a good teacher for two reasons. One, he simply just saw Jesus as being a means to an end and not as being the end itself. In other words, he saw his good deeds as being his ticket into heaven and not his belief, not his confession, not his faith in Christ. Secondly, he saw Jesus as an equal and not as his Lord. What are you talking about, Reverend Fields? Well, it's important to recognize what comes out of our mouth. I love what Proverbs 4.23 says. It says, guard your heart above all else, for out of it flows the source of life. Listen to Matthew 12.34, when Jesus says these words. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And unfortunately, much like this man, man, our mouths can also expose the true condition of our hearts as well. And much like this man, we can see Jesus as being an equal and not as being Lord. See, we can see, simply see Jesus as being a way, as being a means, as being a, the, 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 a method to get to where we're trying to go never realizing that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. I love when I was a little kid riding my bike 
um, as I often did in the neighborhood. And specifically, when I got to be about eight or nine years old, I moved out of the inner city of Detroit, and we moved to a local suburb called Oak Park. And Oak Park in the 80s, they started having these great big apartment complexes, townhomes, that were just these big, big uh, areas where kids and, and everybody just came together and played because we all lived in these townhomes together. And I remember discovering this great phenomenon that I thought was so cool at eight or nine or ten years old. It was called speed bumps. Anybody know about speed bumps? They were painted yellow. They were about this high. And I love those things. And I used to go on my bike and, and pop wheelies off of them and see how high I can get in the air. And we used to have contests between my friends and I using these things called speed bumps. In the city, I didn't know anything about speed bumps. So please excuse my ignorance as, a, as an eight-year-old. See, in life, we too can have a tendency to use Jesus as being a speed bump. He's here to give us a boost, to help us to where we want to go. Maybe he's here to slow us down because so we don't, we don't kind of go out of control. But Jesus is not here to give you a boost, and Jesus is not just here to slow you down. Jesus is here to direct every aspect of your life. We can have the wrong persona. We can draw the wrong picture of who Jesus is. And much like this rich young ruler, we also can desire Jesus' blessing while forsaking his instruction. Notice with me how Jesus responds to this man in verse 17. Jesus says this, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And this is how I personally know that Jesus was more than just a good teacher. Because honestly, on Sundays when I preach up here and someone tells me, hey, you did a good job, I can take that to the bank and go home. <laughs> I can say, okay, that was a good sermon. Or somebody may come up to me and say, James, that wasn't such a good sermon. Okay, next week I'll try to make it better as best I can under the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how we know that Jesus wasn't just merely a good teacher. Because a good teacher would take this compliment and simply went on his day, but not Jesus. Notice with me that although this man was measuring Jesus by the law, and although this man was measuring Jesus by his good deeds, and although this man was measuring Jesus by his worldly standards, notice how Jesus was measuring this man. He was measuring this man by the word of God. I love what Psalm 105 says. It says, for the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generation. Now, to be totally transparent, to be totally transparent, the story should have ended right there. The story, Matthew should have put his pen down and stopped recording the story because this man, uh, Jesus, because this man uh, has been confronted by Jesus, and Jesus called this man's sinful, prideful heart into question by taking the glory from himself and putting it upon the Father. The story should have ended right there at that moment. But much like us, this man wouldn't be satisfied until his point was proven. 
For in his pride, he still believed and he still wanted to prove that Jesus was just a man, just like him. And therefore, instead of humbling himself, and instead of submitting himself to the authority of Christ, he defended himself. It's a good reminder for us as a church that Jesus' call to salvation demands radical surrender. That Jesus' call to salvation demands a radical surrender. I love what David Platt says in his commentary about this. He splits it this way. Salvation is a call and a summons to lose your life, to let go of everything you have and everything you are in submission to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let's continue to examine the second aspect which reveals this man's heart. Secondly, the man exposes his selfish heart by continuing to ask Jesus this question. Good teacher or teacher, what good shall I do that I might have eternal life? Now notice how he emphasizes this word I. Church family, this is also a good reminder for us that whenever the focus is on you, whenever the spotlight is on you, Whenever the outcome is determined by your doing something, it always diminishes the glory of God. He asks Jesus what every prideful, what every self-centered heart wants to know. How much must I give in order to get by? Or in other words, what's the least, what's the minimum that I have to do in order to get the most benefit? Noticing the significance here. Notice the significance. He asks Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He asks Jesus, what good thing must I do to enter into eternal life? Not godly thing, not righteous thing, not even holy thing, but this man asks, what good thing must I do? Well, again, you may be wondering why this is important. Well, it's important not because of what he said, but more importantly, it's important because of his reasoning for saying it. You see, basically, he was telling Jesus that, Jesus, I'm seeking salvation by my own merit and not by the grace of God. He was telling Jesus that he desired Jesus to change his life, but he didn't want Jesus, excuse me, he desired Jesus to change his life, but he didn't want Jesus to change him. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> what was his focus? Unfortunately, his focus was on himself. His focus was on his self-righteous deeds. His focus was on his ability to meet God's qualification for salvation. I love what Proverbs 21 and 2 says about this. It says this, these words, all a person's ways seems right to him, but the Lord, he weighs the heart. I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves even as we enter this week. Church family, where's your focus been? What's your focus on? 
Are you truly trusting in Jesus for your salvation? Not, not Jesus or something else. But are you trusting in Jesus for your salvation? Are you looking to Jesus as your Lord and not just as your Savior? And that word Lord is very important because that word Lord means owner. That he owns everything in your life. Are you depending upon his strength, his wisdom, his power to help you get through the day? And if not, I invite you. I encourage you to repent from depending upon yourself and look once again to Jesus. Let me talk to my homeschooling parents right now just for a minute. Raise your hand if you're homeschooling. If you're at home, helping out. Raise them, be proud, y'all. Raise those hands high. Y'all are America's champions. Amen. You are the teacher, the counselor, the principal, the gym teacher, all in one one's day. You just put those hats on. How do I know? Because my wife is doing it every day, and I watch her doing a great job at it. But listen to what uh, this word from a lady named Melanie Fabin, where she wrote on her blog, Exhale Mama. Listen to these words if you're homeschooling. Take this encouragement with you into the week. She writes, your kids don't need perfection. They need to see you ask for help, take breaks, and apologize. They need to watch you sit in silence and talk to God and affirm that it's okay to cry because you were, you were never meant to be their savior and they need to know you need saving too. Let your life tell the life of Jesus. That's what your kids need the most. I think we all say amen to that. Amen. One of the greatest joys of moving from the Northeast over here to Kentucky has been, and I hate to say it because I know a lot of people probably don't like it, but I love it, is the, um, the, inner, the, the highway system here. And listen, if you spend one week on the Northeast and Kevin's shaking his head, he knows what I'm talking about. If you spend one week in New York or New Jersey or Philly trying to, trying to navigate, listen, 264, 265 will seem like gold to you just as it does to me. But one of the greatest joys and also pains of returning to Kentucky is the highway system. Hey, when you go down the street down Taylor Boulevard and you get on 264, what is the first thing you do? Look for oncoming traffic, make sure no, no cars are coming towards you because I've seen that before, right? People driving the wrong way up 264. That happens. I've seen it. You merge right, right? You merge to get onto the traffic. And as you enter into the highway, you're riding on a side road called the on-ramp, coming onto the freeway. And you are responsible from then on to go in and merge into the major flow of traffic. Now, it would be to your betterment to slow down and look back before entering the highway because cars are coming. Amen? Sometimes 80, 90 miles per hour, they're coming. Sometimes 35 miles per hour, they're coming. Sometimes people stop to let you on to the highway, which is a no-no. If you don't, don't do that. Please don't do that. It's not good. But we know that when we go onto the on-ramp, and as we go onto 264 or 265, we all know this one thing. That you are the one. 
are the one who is going to need to adjust. Because everyone else has the right of way. And much like the oncoming traffic, God also has a right of way in your life. He's moving along with his plans for your life, but you have to merge. You have to blend in with what he is already doing in your life. And your actions and your plans must yield to his will for your life ahead of your own, your own plans. So let me ask you this question. Where in your life do you need to merge your dependence back towards Jesus? Where in your life do you need to merge your dependence back towards him? This week, it, what could it look like to merge your dependence upon Jesus? I tell you that it has to begin with these two things. Before you merge your dependence back to the Jesus, you have to do these two things. Number one, you have to admit to yourself and you have to admit to God that you want to be independent from him. Reconciliation cannot happen without first confessing what's wrong. And you have to go to God and say, God, I have been trying to play God in my own life. I have been mad at you because I, I've seen myself and my plans being superior to your plans. And time and time again, you have allowed my plans to fail. And now, God, I want to turn to you and I want you to merge my plans into your plans. We first have to admit your desire to be independent from God. The second thing you must do is this. Ask God to create dependency within you. You can't do this by yourself. This ain't something you can find on YouTube. You're not going to find how to do this except from the ways that God has instructed it through his word. And you need to ask God to create in you a dependency upon him. What could this look like this week? Let me give you a couple examples. Maybe you start your day praying instead of exercising or before you exercise. Maybe you pray before you start your day. Maybe you go to the Psalms of the day. Maybe you go to whatever the date is. I don't even know what today's date is, but whatever the date is tomorrow, you go to that Psalm, you read it, and then you pray and ask God for strength to begin your day. Even before you pick up your phone, even before you look at your calendar, even before you make the kids breakfast, ask God to go before you and to bless your day and to bless your week. Maybe you have to pray over your kids. Maybe you need to take your little child and, and bring them into your room and pray with them over their frustrations with NTI right now. Maybe instead of trying to fix it for them, invite them to see that you depend upon Christ just as much as they do or they need to. Maybe you acknowledge the pain and the suffering that you're walking through, through through starting to write in a journal. Maybe you open up that journal. Maybe you haven't opened up your journal in weeks. Maybe you get your journal this week and you open it back up. You blow the dust off of it and you start writing your pain, your sorrows, your frustrations. Or better yet, maybe you acknowledge your weakness to your spouse. Maybe you acknowledge that, hey, honey, Everything looks great at home. The kids are getting fed. 
They're doing their schoolwork, but I am a mess internally. I'm in, a, I'm in a mess, and I need you as my husband or as my wife to come alongside me in my suffering and in my weakness. I know everything looks good to everybody else. Everything looks great on Facebook, but I'm dying inside. And I need you as my husband. I need you as my wife to come alongside me and love me in the midst of my brokenness. What if you don't have a spouse? Maybe you look to someone else. You look to an accountability partner. You look to a roommate or a friend. And you ask them to walk alongside me this week. Ask them to pray with you on very specific desires that you want to see God fulfill in your life and in your family's life. Church family, the sun rises every day and the sun sets every day at a predicted time. We see that. The moon comes out. The stars are, are seen at night. We see it every single night, every single day. We see the faithfulness of God. And sometimes we have to acknowledge that the problem isn't with God, but the problem is with us. And our lack of humility to be honest with God and to be honest with ourselves of where we are in relationship to him. So we looked at the first description of this young man, Rich. Let's take time to look at the second description here of him being young. Look with me in verse 17b through 20. He says this, Jesus says these words, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, which ones, he asks. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not, excuse me, honor your mother and your father and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? See, Jesus exposes this man's spiritual immaturity by saying, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, I want you to notice two aspects about Jesus' response. Number one, he invites him into life and not into eternal life. That's very important. And number two, he does this by inviting him to simply keep the commandments. Now, if you were like me reading this text, you're probably thinking, what in the world are you doing, Jesus? Why, why are you doing this? What, what is going on here? Well, Jesus knew this man's heart. And therefore, he knew that the man desired to maintain his worldly lifestyle more so than becoming one of his disciples. And this is something that God has impressed upon my heart and reminded me of even this very week. That Jesus, when he lived on this earth, he was, he was, all, about, um, he was all about gathering disciples and not just a crowd. Jesus would say on purpose hard things when the people would get too large. He would say those things so that people have to make a choice of commitment. Now, am I really going to be with this man? Do I really want to eat his flesh and drink his blood? That sounds kind of weird and gross. Yes, it does. Without understanding what he meant by that. And Jesus is always committed to attracting disciples and not just a crowd. He don't, Jesus is not a fanboy who needs fanatics to, 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 to sing his glory and praise. Jesus has said that even when if we do not shout out the praises of God, the very rocks that sit and we look around, even on this ground, will shout out praises to our God and our King. He doesn't need us to be a part of his worship. He invites us. 
to be a part of his worship. See, Jesus did not direct this man to himself as being the way to life because he wanted to impress upon this man two standards. He wanted to help him to understand the high standards required by God, namely confession of sin and repentance, that biblical unity always starts with acknowledgement. We cannot have biblical unity without first acknowledging what we are being unified to and what we're being unified from. We have to own our part in this unity first. And it's a good reminder for us to be reminded that the greatest victim and the greatest hero in all of Scripture always has been and always will be God. God is the one who suffered the loss of humanity turning their back on him, eating the fruit that he said not to eat. And Thank you for that. And God has been the one pursuing us as we have been departing and leaving him. God is both the greatest victim and also the greatest hero in all of Scripture. It also helps us understand that the Old Testament was, was primarily used to point people to Jesus. Jesus is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. Everything that was written in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment and finds its culmination in the person of Jesus. But notice this man's response. Notice his response to what Jesus says in verse 18. He said to Jesus, which ones? I mean, gosh, as if he was able to, able to keep even one of the commands. And Jesus replied to elicit a response of humility and also of repentance. But instead, the man immaturely wants to proclaim his personal credentials for heaven. I love what Proverbs 14, 12 says. It says that there's a way that seems right to a man but in its end is the way of death. Notice also with me in verse 18, notice the commands that Jesus chooses to tell this man to keep. He gives him six. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father, and love your neighbor as yourself. Notice these six commands all have to do with our relationship with someone else. They all have to do with ethical or moral living. Meaning that even a good person, even a moral person could achieve these commands and still be separated from God. But notice the four that Jesus did not include. He didn't include, do not have any other God besides me. He did not include, do not make an idol for yourself. He did not include, do not misuse the name of the Lord thy God, and he did not include, keep the Sabbath holy. So you may be thinking, right, Pastor Fields, what, what's the difference between the, the first six and the last six? Well, the main difference is that in order to do, to accomplish the last four command, uh, commandments, you must be a born-again born believer. You must be one who is filled and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You must be one who is committed to living and pursuing Jesus, not just as a means to an end, but as to the very end itself. We've looked at the qualifications of this man as being rich. We've looked at the qualifications of him being young. Now let's look at the last qualification, description of him as being a ruler. 
Now, out of all three of these characteristics, rich, young ruler, I believe that this attitude of being a ruler was the one that, that most disturbed Jesus because he alone had been crowned to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. So notice his response in verse 21. Notice how Jesus responds. He says this, if you want to be perfect, in the original Greek, the Greek word that's used here is teleos. Teleos is a word that means complete or whole. It has the image of mending two broken things, like a broken bone. If you have a doctor in the house, if anybody's a doctor, you know that putting two things that are fractured or broken together is painful, but it's necessary for the healing. So Jesus looks at this man, and he says, if you want to be made complete, if you want to be made whole, then do what I'm about to tell you. You see, this man was struggling to hold on to his, his incompleteness without Jesus. This man was struggling to hold on to his inadequate reality of salvation. Therefore, he equated salvation with his doing and not with his being. He equated salvation with his works and not with his repentance. What does that look like? I think it's a good question we need to ask ourselves. That are you, am I, worshiping the wrong God? And I want you to hear me when I, when I say when I say that. Are you worshiping the God of the Bible? Or are you worshiping the God of your imagination? Are you worshiping a God that can, that can control, that you can control? Or are you worshiping the God who controls you? Well, what does that look like when a person is worshiping the wrong God? It looks like this. You believe that your job is paying all of your bills. You believe that your job is the end-all, be-all of everything. Not realizing that there is a God in heaven whose name is Jehovah Jireh. That means the Lord is my provider. It means that your career is the foundation to your success. You got to have the right job. You got to have the right interview. You got to have the right internships. Not never realizing that there is a God in heaven whose name is Jehovah Nisi. That means the Lord is our banner. It means that you look to your significant other. You look for the life of romance to, uh, to, to steal your heart away. Never realizing that there is a God in heaven who can capture your heart as well as your soul, and his name is Jehovah Rapha. That means the Lord is our healer. See, Jesus challenged this man to his own standard. Jesus challenged this man to a standard of excellence, a standard of perfection, a standard of holiness. And listen to what he says in verse 21. He says, if you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. See, Jesus was saying to this fake ruler, to every other fake ruler known to man, if you want to be complete, <clears throat> If you want to be able to drink from the same cup that I'm about to drink from, then you first must submit to my authority. Jesus was challenging this man by saying, if you want to be the king, you must first surrender your crown to the true king. It's a good reminder for us as a church. <clears throat> 
that Jesus called to salvation guarantees radical reward. You see, the, the crazy thing about all this is that Jesus was not calling the rich young man away from treasure, but he was actually calling him to treasure. Jesus tells the rich young man to go, sell your possessions, and then he follows it up by saying, and then you will have treasure in heaven. I have to ask you today, do you know him? <laughs> do you know this man named Jesus? What aspects in your life are you struggling to hold on to? For this man, it was everything that we strive for in this world. Wealth, youthfulness, and power. Where is your struggle? What is keeping you from being made complete in Jesus? What are you struggling to hold on to? Is this your self-righteous nature? Is it your prideful heart? Is it your anger? Is it lust? Is it jealousy? What are you struggling to hold on to? What is keeping you from being made complete in Jesus? Is it your lying tongue? Is it your blaspheming heart? Is it your need for salvation? Where is your struggle? What is keeping you from being made complete in Jesus? Is it envy? Is it doubt? Is it unbelief? And what I love about Jesus is that he remains faithful and true to his word. And even when exposing this man's heart, he still takes the basic time. He takes the time to answer the basic question of how can I be saved? Look with me in verse 21. Jesus tells some of these words. He says, go sell what you have. That's a call to repentance. He said, Jesus is telling him, get rid of your idols. Identify your idols. Repent of them. Turn away from them. Then he says, give it to the poor. That is a call to sanctification. That he would use our work. He would use we, we, that God will use our works for his own glory. He says that then you will have true treasure in heaven. That is a call to dependency, to rely upon Christ's atoning work for our salvation. And then lastly, but definitely not least, he says, and come follow me. That's a call to perseverance, to depend upon Christ as our example. I love what verse 22 says at the very end. No, look with me there. It says this. It says, when the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. It's a good reminder for us as a church that God's call to salvation requires us to recognize our limitations. In other words, our insufficiencies our inadequacies should lead us to the one who is sufficient. I love this because it reminds us that even for Jesus, every story is not a triumph of grace. Every story doesn't end in victory. Every story doesn't end with someone coming to Jesus. It's a good reminder for us that when God recognized that you are not God, he does not get frustrated with you. God would never be mad at you because you are not God. It's not your job. It's his job to be God, so let him be that. And lastly, but not least, it's a good reminder for us that God's progress is worth our patience. Trust what God is doing. Church family, if you don't hear anything, please listen to this last point. Trust what God is doing through our weak and frail bodies. 
Trust him. Trust what he's doing. Yesterday was one of the best days of my life because college football came back on TV and I was able to watch game day, which I love to watch every Saturday. <clears throat> and as many of you know, COVID, this COVID season has really changed the environment of every single college sta stadium around this country. For the first time ever, stadiums that were once filled to their capacity were now empty or limited in their capacity to say the least. And yesterday before his game, one of my favorite coaches, Mac Brown, who coaches at the University of North Carolina, he was asked a simple question before his game. And the announcer asked him this, he says, Coach Brown, how do you get your players excited to play a game when so much has been taken away from them? No bands, no fans, no cheerleaders. Everything seemingly has been taken away. And I love, absolutely love Mac Brown's response. Mac Brown looked at him and he said this, he said, I told them that this situation will only reveal those who truly love to play football. He said, if you truly love the game of football, then all the other extra things won't be necessary because you're still able to play the game that you love. In this story, Jesus was inviting this man to take away all the things that he had and to bare neck and to stand bare and naked before him and to look to him for, look to Christ for his salvation. And I love this, I love this because it reminds us that if we truly love Jesus and as we grow to love him, he will always be the most important thing. <laughs> regardless if we're meeting inside or we're meeting outside, regardless if community groups are going great or they're going poorly, regardless if our giving is where it should be or giving is not where it should be, if he is the most important thing, if he is the most important thing, then it will be seen and it will be known through our actions. Today as a church, we celebrate 20 years of Sojourn Church's ex existence, and I invite us as this church, Sojourn Church Carlisle, to go forward into the next 20 years remembering three things. One, Jesus' call to salvation demands radical surrender. Two, Jesus' call to salvation guarantees radical reward. And three, Jesus' call to salvation requires us to recognize our limitations. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and praise you for your good God and King. We thank you for this word and this message. We thank you for helping us to see, God, that we can find sufficiency, sufficiency in you despite our insufficiencies in ourselves. And God, where we have tried to be insufficient apart from you, God, we repent. God, we say we're sorry. We first say sorry because we realize, God, that you are our God and our King. You're not just Savior, you're, you're Lord. You own everything. So we surrender our hearts and minds to you even now. Pray that as we take this bread and we take this wine, that you will be with us and you will encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The bread and wine that we're about to partake of speaks to the reality of God being our source, of God being our sustenance, and God being our strength. And as a church, we proclaim much more than we actually would like to think as we partake of this meal. We declare that God is our sufficient king. So the night when he was betrayed, Jesus 
broke bread and blessed it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat. This is my body broken for you. Let us take and eat in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the same way, he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant. Pour it out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus went on to say, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink from it anew in my Father's kingdom. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.